So I struggled with that. I struggled with that reality that I so bad wanted to be on that I wasn't being real with myself about what I was going through. And the truth is, and I love MIT and I love what MIT did for me, my folks in those environments, they were telling me sound advice. They were telling me how it works based off their experience. They were never trying to set me up for what we call the okie doke. They weren't. They were telling me, if you do this and you talk to this person, you're good. They always write checks. And I got to those meetings and I had those conversations. And, you know, my truth is I, I had term sheets. I've had investors say, hey, we want to invest this much, but we just need you to raise this extra 100000 And when it came to that last 100000 I couldn't get it. I couldn't get the, the high network individuals to write me $50,000 checks. And that, that was a harsh moment for me, a harsh reality to deal with. What's up on Foundation? Dan Kihanya here. Thanks so much for checking out another episode of Founders Unfound. That was Khalid David, founder and CEO of TrackFlow a company with a predictive financial management platform that is empowering America's contractors. Originally from the Bronx, Khalid was born into a family of tradesmen with a deep connection to his Afro-Caribbean roots. So it's no surprise that, even with education from Morehouse, Columbia, and MIT, Khalid ended up in the construction industry. And it was those experiences that opened his eyes to the inefficiencies hampering workflow on today's construction sites. And so TrackFlow was born. Khalid has a great story you'll want to listen in. Our episode is sponsored by Afroblocks, the global pan-African freelance marketplace and collaboration platform. A great resource for devs, designers, and virtual assistants. Check out the link in the show notes. And please make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. We're available anywhere you get your podcasts, even YouTube. And if you like what you hear, please drop us a five-star review on Apple or Podchaser.com. It helps so much and we really appreciate it. And make sure to tell your friends about us. Now, on with the episode. Stay safe and hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented and underestimated backgrounds. This is the latest episode in our continuing series on founders of African descent. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. Today, we have Khalid David, founder and CEO of TrackFlow, a company with a predictive financial management platform that is empowering America's contractors. Welcome to the show, Khalid. We're super excited to have you. Thanks for making the time. Thank you so much, Dan. I appreciate being here and I'm excited to share my story. Awesome. So I gave kind of a broad introduction of TrackFlow, but as we get started, maybe you can just give us a little more flavor about what is TrackFlow precisely? We're a mobile platform that allows contractors to track, input, and manage changing project costs in a mobile environment. You can think of us as when you go out to dinner with your friends and use like Venmo or Cash App to split a bill. We help multiple stakeholders on an active construction site make decision pretty much on who owes who what in a mobile platform. I love it. And I, I don't know much about construction, so we're probably going to get into a little bit where you uh, you school me. But before we talk more about TrackFlow, let's let's hear more about you. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? So I was born in the Bronx, grew up in Mount Vernon, New York, a suburb just north of the city. Folks are from the islands. So big up all Caribbean massive. Poop, poop, poop. Nice. And from islands called St. Kitts and Nevis. Two small islands. I like to consider us boutique because not everyone knows about them. So I grew up first-generation American, 
in a Caribbean household uh, in New York City. I grew up in a family of carpenters. I'm sure if, if any of you guys are from the cities, there's always like these stereotypes, like all the island guys are like in construction and all the women are like nurses and stuff like that. I'm sure we've all seen the stereotypes. But yeah, I'm actually a product of one of those kind of households. My dad was a trademan and I came from a whole family of trademen. All of my dad's brothers and my grandfather. Did that come in when your family got here to the United States or was that even going back to St. Kitts? Yeah, my grandfather was a trademan back in St. Kitts. And one day I met one of my dad's like grade school friends who knew my grandfather back in Ireland. And, you know, they both ended up in the U.S. and New York. And at this time, they're like in their 50s and, and we're talking. And he's talking about how back on the island, how respectable it was to be um, like a carpenter because they're one of the few folks who were able to make their own money, who could you know provide a service and be able to dictate who they do business with, especially in the time when there wasn't really a lot of access to opportunity. So he taught his sons to trade. And when they came to the U.S., they kind of was jumping around, doing odd jobs like a lot of immigrants do. Eventually, they got into like the unions and that the union really provided economic progress for my family and helped them achieve the, the American dream. So Nice. And as a kid, were you were you drawn to this or did you feel like, well, this is just what everybody in the family does? Or were you also sort of like, this is cool. I want to do this. Early on, it was like chores. It was like <laughs> my friends would clown um, me because they were like, you go to anyone else's house and chores are like, take out the garbage or rake the leaves. You go to Khalid's house and chores are, we're going to install this cabinet. We're going to build the shed. I got a good friend that just was like, I hated when your dad would come around because it would be full projects. For me, I always was... I was always drawn to spaces. Like I was one of those kind of dudes who watched HGTV in high school. I excelled in STEM, but you know, really liked kind of architecture. Really liked more the end product, quite honestly. So you know, when I eventually got into the industry, I would learn all the gritty stuff and you know how to level a wall and make sure something's plumb. But I was always most fascinated with the end product, like creating a space, and that's really what drew me to the industry. Interesting. And so when you were going to college, or I guess coming out of high school and thinking about what was next, how did your journey map to what you were thinking at that time? Well, I wanted to be an architect. I had been exposed in the industry. I really like design and I, I like creating those spaces, but I excelled in STEM. And I didn't quite understand that architect was part art. So I really excelled in STEM. I got accepted to a few engineering programs. Ended up at Morehouse doing their dual degree engineering program. So I spent three years at Morehouse, two years at Columbia, and graduated with two degrees, two bachelors in five years. But because I excel in STEM and I was interested in architecture, I ended up with civil engineering, which is kind of like in the middle, like you're designing structures, you design the structural components. So I ended up studying civil engineering and then and ultimately fell in love with construction management because it felt like I could still be a part of ultimately putting those spaces together. Realized that I wasn't really interested in design work, but I wanted to make sure I was part of the teams that presented, created this new product, the manufacturing of a beautiful design or space into something that you ultimately get to touch and taste and live and work. So it was that whole journey for me that ultimately drew me to the construction management. That's fascinating. And I worked in the auto business and they, it was kind of a similar dichotomy. There was the folks who were in the sort of 
the design room, right, with the clay, and they would be doing all this stuff. And then on the other spectrum, there was engineers who were literally rolling up their sleeve like, okay, this part works on the car, but how do we put 60 of these together an hour and make that actually fit with this other one? And so I get that. And I'm just curious, like, were your parents encouraging or supportive or pushing you towards getting a degree or did they have some misgivings and said, why don't you just join us in sort of the trade world? Or how, how did that dynamic happen? That's a great question. It was like, it was like, you need to know this trade in case things don't work out. They couldn't necessarily guide me on what the best educational opportunities were. Like pretty much had to rely on my school and my networks and mentors from high school that was that saw my potential was like you can take this thing to the moon but it was kind of like at a base level I mean you're gonna have enough skills that you can make a decent living depending on however it plays out for you but it was never like you need to be in the industry or you need to take on this legacy it was more like hey you need to know a trade in case these other things don't work out if they do more power to you because you know they didn't really have the skills to help me navigate college or a professional career, anything like that. But, you know, they taught me what they knew. It's actually pretty open-minded, I would say. You know, my dad was an immigrant too. And, and sometimes they come with like, you can be anything you want. You can be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. <laughs> so you come out of college with this amazing experience, two degrees out of two amazing institutions, and you're interested in construction. Now, construction, I'm not an expert on this, but I do believe there's sort of peaks and valleys, feast and famine. Did you come out of college when that industry was booming or was it struggling or like, what was the timing of your emergence into construction? So I came out during, in 2010, right after the Great Recession. And I kid you not, at this time, when I was still in school, I thought I was the man, the man. I had interned with Turner and Kellogg Brown and Root, two of the largest builders on the planet. I had went to these great schools and I thought, I'm fine, that my tickets, I can just cash this ticket in. And at that time, during the Great Recession, I was told that there were 40-year-old PMs who were taking entry-level jobs because they were sending their daughter to college and they needed, they needed to work. There was no way I can compete with their experience. So during that time, construction, you know, housing market had fallen out. Construction market, especially for these large firms, really dried up. So my story is, I actually, I was applying for jobs for about nine or 10 months. And I had an uncle who was a great tradesman, could look across a room and tell you if a photo was unlevel. Really good with customers, could get jobs, but could never finish them. Didn't have the formal training, couldn't really manage books, didn't know how to do a, a true qualified estimate or respond to a request for a proposal. And I got tired of looking for work. I got really frustrated with just the constant rejection and the notion that my value was somehow determined by what corporation said that they'll hire me. I had did an entrepreneurship minor during my time at Columbia. And about 10 months out, and a partner of my uncle, like, hey, he's like, I got another client. And I'm like, hey, let me do the estimate. I learned this during my internships. I'll do the estimate. I'll price it out. I'll put together a formal proposal, the scope of work, an estimate, a schedule, and a schedule of values, and present them. And between us, you could run the field, not run the books. We ended up getting the job. I remember it was raining that day, and I remember getting a $20,000 deposit. And I was the first 
payment I had gotten post-college. And at that point, I knew like, oh my God, I can create value in the world. And that pretty much lit the entrepreneurship bug on fire for me. That was my experience post-undergrad. Isn't that amazing when that first bit of money, I'm sure you've gone through this at this point now, but it's like you start having lots of it and it's almost just a number. But when you see the first big chunk of money come in, whether it's revenue or an investment, you're like, wow. I mean, you have to stop and pause, right? It's just like, (laughs) whoa. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It was, I never had a check that large. I just, nothing has ever paid me that much. And again, it's construction. The margins are high. We spent 90% of it on materials and labor. I meant the margins are low, but yeah, at that time it was mind blowing. It was mind blowing. And like you think about salaries and what people make in a year. And again, you're not thinking about your margins. You're not thinking about all that. You're just thinking, hey, (laughs) this is a third of what people are looking for in jobs right now. And I have it in a check. Oh my God. If I could just master this skill, I could write my own ticket. It's a lot of zeros on the left of the decimal point that you're not used to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you do this with your uncle. Sounds like that was successful. Did anything else happen between that and TrackFlow? Oh, yeah. So I did that for about three years. And it was really during that time that the first kind of foundations of what would become TrackFlow were started. Actually, actually, there's a pitch of me pitching in Harlem with a company called TrackFlow that had a K in it, where I'm talking about how you should be able to manage the project in a mobile environment. And I'm walking through this kind of design that I created and I'm trying to pitch like, hey, I need this for my company and I think I could could, uh, make it. But um, I did that for about three years and ultimately um, just grew a little frustrated with the limits of being a subcontractor got really passionate about technology. I was putting together like Google Sheets and all this stuff, trying to manage costs. When you're out there on the field and things are moving a mile a minute, I would be out there on the field helping the guys, pushing projects forward, and then still have to come home in the evenings and then manage the books and manage the costs and try to make sure everything worked out. It was too much. So I ended up, I decided, hey, well, maybe let me take a day job. And if I take a day job, maybe I can learn the code at night and maybe I can bring this thing out. And that day job is with Turner Construction. And I get to Turner and turns out they're trying to solve the same problem. They have a whole team trying to solve this thing that I was trying to solve myself. And I ended up joining that team, leading that team, growing out their software division to the point where they were managing about $180 million worth of project costs in a platform that we had built. The head developer on that team would ultimately become my co-founder, Jake. We built the solution so large while at Turner that they pretty much decided, hey, we're a hundred-year-old construction firm, not a software firm. This has grown too much. We don't know how to manage a tech stack. We don't, we're not going to hire folks. This will stifle your career because there's no career path at this company if you're building software. Like you got to, you can't become a project executive doing that. You got to go put up a building if you want to become a project executive. And at this time, more and more solutions started emerging in the marketplace. So they ultimately decided, hey, it's a little too risky to be building software as a construction firm. We're a little more confident that the tools will emerge and we can buy them. And let's shut this down. It's been a good run. And at that point, I'd fallen in love with the intersection of construction technology. I met with the CEO. I met with the CIO and literally the senior vice president of engineering wrote my letter of recommendation at MIT. And so I was able to leave the company on a good note, 
and maintain those relationships. And um, at MIT is where TrackFlow was born. Nice. Well, we're going to dig more deeply, definitely into TrackFlow, but we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Khalid David from TrackFlow. You're a visionary founder building the next big thing, but your ever-growing to-do list is slowing you down. Well, lucky for you, getting things done just got easier. Introducing AfriBlocks. AfriBlocks can connect you with the top freelance talent in all of Africa, and they will manage the project for you. We have vetted thousands of software developers, graphic designers, social media managers, and virtual assistants who can help you save time, save money, and build better. Get it done right the first time. Visit afriblocks.com and tell us Dan sent you to get 10% off your first job. So we're back with Khalid David from TrackFlow. So before we, we go into the company, I want to I ask this question. You talked about in the last segment how the company basically, Turner said, hey, we're a construction company. It's nice, the, the software thing, but we don't want to do that. I have a question for you, a hypothetical. What if they had said, you know what, this is a great idea. Why don't you stay and run this for us and we'll sell it to other companies? Would you have stayed? Well, that's a great question. I believe so. So we were trying to do that. The group that I was a part of, we were trying to get them to think of it as a business opportunity and create almost another, another business unit to do it. I possibly would have stayed. The reality, though, is that it likely would have stifled the growth of the business. You probably would never been able to sell to their competitors. You probably would never really been able to raise the amount of money you really needed. And your ability to attract talent to that group would have been somewhat challenging. So, yeah, I like to believe that I probably would have stayed mostly because of my passion for delivering the service, my passion to moving the industry forward. I think that even... When we've had challenging times of track, well, I realized that's really what's driving me. It's like, yeah, technology, business, all this stuff. But I do have, I've been out there, I've felt that pain point. When things get tough, it's talking to this subcontracting company that was started by these Irish immigrants who during COVID, things got crazy. And this tool is helping them for the first time really understand their business in a way and giving them confidence that they can get through the pandemic. It was moments like that that kept me kind of going. Like, I know that story. I, I get it. You came here for opportunity. You started a trade man. You started a business. And now your business is growing and, and you need different tools. You need people, people who respect your industry enough that is willing to commit talent and resources to help solve your problems, especially in an industry that kind of feels like we've been overlooked. So to answer your question, I likely would have stayed. It, the reason would have been because it would have been driving impact and driving a change in the way that we do business. But it probably would have been limited in how impactful it could have been if we had a state. I love that answer because you kind of hit on three key aspects of a sort of dedicated, passionate entrepreneur. One, you're about solving the problem, right? You, you put the problem first and foremost ahead of like, where is this structured? But then you look at the structure, like it's inside a company and like, is it going to serve the best way? And then third, this idea of like always going back to the customer. What's the why? And so as I look at entrepreneurs, I mean, the people who kind of check those boxes, I'm like, wow, I just want to follow them into the fire. So you're going to business school. You got track flow out of Turner. 
And so before we dive more into the story, tell us a little bit more about how it works and anticipate that most of our audience is pretty unfamiliar with the <laughs> construction industry as a whole. But what's the value that you're bringing? So first, I got to make a disclaimer. I didn't get track flow out of Turner. Turner was a good growing ground for my learning. And I eventually launched TrackFlow out of MIT. That's just a little little disclaimer there. We don't want to get anybody in trouble with IP or anything. So uh, that's all on me. Sorry. And we do business with Turner now. So they are trusted partners of ours. So in layman terms, imagine if you've ever done a kitchen or bathroom renovation. And if you've ever done it, kitchen, bathroom, a deck, anything. Um, it typically starts at one price and ends at another price. Any kind of home improvement project that you've done where you have to hire a contractor. And that's because construction innately has what we call change orders, but are unforeseen changes to the project scope that affects time and cost, pretty much time and money. Well, when you're building, let's say, a residential tower in midtown Manhattan, they deal with the same challenges. But this time, those changes are in the tens of millions of dollars. And what we do is we help the multiple stakeholders who have to be a part of that decision-making process make those decisions in mobile environments. And it's a big pain when it comes to these commercial construction projects, particularly because how the contracts are written and the demands on the project. So when an unforeseen change occurs on a job site, that trade contractor has one or two decisions to make. Either they can stop because they don't know what they're doing, but there's penalties for anyone who depends on their work that may get delayed, and there's penalties for delaying the project. And those penalties tend to be super high because these developers are selling these apartments or the office building has an anchor tenant or what have you. Or you can make a decision to spend your own money to keep the project going and with the hopes that as long as you document it, that you'll get paid for it on the back end. So let's say a sink doesn't fit a, a counter marble cutout. If you stop and the cabinet people who come after you or the plumber can't work, you face penalties. Or if you say, all right, I'm going to bring some guy in tonight who's going to cut the marble in place. It's going to cost me an extra 100, 200 bucks. But you know, I'm going to go ahead and do it. I'm going to document what happened. And I'm going to say, hey, we needed, we needed to get paid for this because we couldn't stop or everyone would face these penalties. And that process creates a phenomenon we call at-risk work. It's money that's spent, but nobody has agreed to it just yet. It's outside of the contract. And in order to accurately document that, for the longest while, trade contractors pulled out what you call a ticket book. It's pretty much a paper notepad that they hold in their back of their pocket. Well, they'll write down, hey, I needed three extra guys to work at night to cut the marble tiles. And it comes with a little pink and yellow carbon copy that you've, you've all seen before. And one company, let's say if I'm cutting marble, I'm probably a masonry company. The general contractor who's managing the job, they're supposed to get a paper slip. And any of the project managers who's not on site, who needs to determine the cost, they're supposed to get a paper slip. As you can imagine, paper slips get lost all the time. It doesn't have the right signature. It got wet. The guy's hand's not legible. No one knows exactly what happened or what was spent or how it's spent. And that quickly exacerbates when you're building, let's say, a $100 million project. 
some context, $100 million, let's say it takes two years, that's $50 million a year, that's $2 million a month. So quickly, if let's say you're spending an extra $200,000 a month, 10% of that in unforeseen stuff, that quickly adds up. You add a half a million in three months if you don't get this documentation wrapped up. So what we do is we allow contractors to document this on a phone. We allow them to snap photos, record videos, be able to send it to all the stakeholders simultaneously. We allow them to pull in the pre-approved labor and material costs that was decided at the beginning of the project. And by doing all that mobile, instead of waiting for stacks of paper to come from the job site and things to get lost, we allow contractors to understand the financial exposure almost in real time. Our product has shown to improve approval time by 45 days, a reduced financial risk by 10% in the first 30 days, while also saving engineering staff about 10 hours a week that was normally spent just taking papers, sending out emails, and updating Excel. So that's the problem that exists on construction site. And that's how we kind of help organize information so that they can make decisions faster. That makes a lot of sense. Wow. And thank you for explaining it in a way that us civilians can understand. I totally get it. I mean, this is the classic situation that many SaaS and digital products have tried to solve in the business world, whether it was healthcare records or legal or so entering a realm which is more traditional, I imagine, like you said, using pen and paper in an environment that's not necessarily suitable, like you said, gets wet, gets lost. It's, a, you know, the dashboard of the truck and it gets blown out the window, or hot dog chili on it or whatever. So tell me, so Jake is your, your co-founder and what's been the biggest struggle for the company at this point? Maybe let's talk about that. So has it been customer side? Is it the hiring side? Is it the investment side? Like what's been some of the big challenges you've faced? Yeah, our biggest challenge is investment, is attracting um, the right set of investors. We all know the data on diverse founders, black founders, and our access to capital. And that investor funding has a myriad of challenges that's associated with it. We can recruit top talent, but we can't make them offers. We've had interns from Stanford, MIT, Berkeley, NYU, Dartmouth, who hear our story, sit in front of me, get a pitch, and they want to bring all their skills to bear. And at the end of the summer, at the end of the semester, when they're looking for an offer, we can't necessarily say, hey, you're top talent. I've convinced you to join an industry that's not that sexy. Like change orders is not sexy, but we can't necessarily make you an offer just not yet because we don't necessarily have the capital. What we've done in terms of customers, we've outpaced companies that's been around longer, that has more funding, and we've outpaced them based off of relationships and level of understanding with the customer that most people don't have. I often tell people I'm a builder first, technologist second. And my job is to use technology to create the new tools for builders. There's so much excitement around property tech, real estate tech, construction tech, that you have a lot of technologists that say, hey, we're going to come in and we're going to revolutionize this industry. They don't have hard hats. They don't have dirty boots. They've never swung a hammer. And they can convince some developer that this solution is going to change everything. And then when it gets to the job site, it falls flat. Because the dude who, you know, has 
worked with the power tools his whole life, does not even understand the context of what you're trying to get them to do. We, from our founding, took very seriously making sure that the trademen were at the center of not only design, but the experience. And that has worked wonders for us. Our relationship with the guys on the field is the thing that we've been outpacing most companies in. So I'm very proud of what we've been able to do on the customer side and the user growth side, but really being able to expand into new markets, really being able to to maintain the talent that we can attract, that really stems from access to capital. And that's been our biggest challenge. We're going to dive more into the fundraising in a bit, but tell me, so you kind of have this experience entrepreneurial in the contracting construction world, and now you have a sort of a tech startup. What's the difference between running those two different companies? Everything. Everything. It's like night and day. They're not even the same business. It's night and day. The innovation economy is built on like a simple concept, but a profound one. It's that, one, you're fundamentally changing the way things are done. And two, you're making that change accessible to as many people as possible. And those two little concepts are profound and difficult at the same time. In regular traditional business, you're, for the most part, just trying to get up to what the standard is. You need to have the right access to capital. You need to have the right labor force. And you're always building to make sure that you can meet the standard. When in innovation, this first part, which is invention, can we do things differently, right? And then the second part, which is innovation, is how can doing things differently affect the most people as possible? You can come up with a new thing. And if the guy on site thinks it's crap and doesn't use it, it crashes your reality. Yeah, you thought it. it, That was some great thinking, but it's not going to happen. So there's this duality where it's like you're constantly, the way that you have to challenge yourself, not only to celebrate new ideas and to celebrate new approaches, but then also earning the respect of driving that adoption by understanding what parts of your approach you thought of and what part your customer demands and your customer needs. And your customer has to ultimately impact, influence what you build so that it makes sense for them. Yeah, I think it's different necessarily from contract in the sense that I say there's no right answer, but the right answer is often subjective in tech was a little more concrete in traditional businesses. So tell me, Khalid, this company blows up and it's huge and you're successful and bragging to your whole family about it. And when you tell them, yes, TrackFlow was a success and this is why, what will you tell them? How will you measure? How will you know that it was successful in your mind? Uh, you can call in on some things, man. You sure you ready for this? I'm ready. So TrackFlow is a vehicle by which my life, my people, the entire environment that I'm a part of, from trademen from the islands to classrooms at MIT, it's an opportunity to say that we're here and we exist. And TrackFlow as a business, when we get to the point where we affect most construction projects, most projects, when they think about doing their finances, TrackFlow is a foregone conclusion and absolutely necessary to not just making sure that this project is running smoothly financially, 
but all the additional services that we can provide is met through our platform. That's a success from the standpoint of what we've built as a technology and what we've built as a number of zeros and one and code base and years of interviews and all that stuff. As a leader, success is when people can look to TrackFlow as an organization and a CEO in terms of understanding why it's important that diverse founders have opportunities to innovate and opportunities to impact industries. And not just diverse founders. I have a goal to make sure my organization looks like the cities that it serves. So diverse employees and being a type of organization where we don't need a diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative because we were diverse, equitable, and inclusive from the very from the very beginning. And how important it is that not only I see it, this diversity to build this diverse company and impact industry, but the next wave of leaders see it, that my son sees it, that the next group of Black entrepreneurs or Latina entrepreneurs or whoever, when those investors are looking to them, they can say, you can be the next Lee David. I exist in a society that oftentimes why I believe Black founders struggle with getting access to capital because there's no next thing that someone can look at me and say. And oftentimes, the gatekeepers, these wealthy folks, and you know, if you guys are listening, you don't often don't have a frame of reference. You don't have a nephew that I remind you of. You don't have a guy you went to college with that was black and did really well. You often don't have a frame of reference of who I am. And oftentimes, you know, our counterparts who's able to get access to capital, you can see younger versions of yourself in them. You can see they remind you of that uncle or that dude that you went to school with who's a multi-millionaire that made it in tech. So sometimes when a high network individuals are sitting across the table from me and they're trying to make sense of it, and I don't think it's intentional, you're trying to make sense of what to do with all this black brilliance. And there's no reference point. There's nothing you compare it to. So for me, success is also being that reference point. It's also being a symbol that we can look upon as a society and say it was absolutely important that this black founder went out and built a business. It was important that he pursued an industry that he loved. It was important that he fought tooth and nail to gain access to capital and never took no for an answer. Because his example and the example of the company that he built ultimately shapes the future for the next leaders that come along. There was an article on MIT called Lost Einsteins, and it talks about how much bigger the American GDP would be if there was diverse and low-income people that participated in the innovation economy, and that the biggest determinant of if you will participate in the innovation economy was if you were one degree of separation from someone who did it as a child. So our white counterparts, whose dad's a VC or dad's in tech or mom's in tech or what have you, they are 10 times more likely to participate in the innovation economy. But if your dad was a trademan or a plumber or even a lawyer, you're drastically less likely to participate in an economy that's spent on creating new ideas, 
and using the new ways and new ideas to impact the way people do things. And there's so much trillions of dollars that's being lost in our economy because we're not tapped into those. I'm on a mission to prove that right. I'm on a mission to take up this mantle and to say, I'm living proof that it's right. And so to me, success is absolutely, uh, technology is impactful and it changes the way that our industry works. But success is also, that's not mutually exclusive for my blackness. It's not mutually exclusive for my diversity of my company. It is one and the same. And as people look at that and they say, how many more industries can be impacted if we truly, truly invested in the future of black leaders or diverse leaders or whoever? That's what the fight is for me. And that's why I keep going. I love that. Great stuff. Oh, man. I said I was ready. I don't know if I was. That was, <laughs> that was a lot to digest there. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Khalid David from TrackFlow. You're a visionary founder building the next big thing, but your ever-growing to-do list is slowing you down. Well, lucky for you, getting things done just got easier. Introducing AfriBlocks. AfriBlocks can connect you with the top freelance talent in all of Africa, and they will manage the project for you. We have vetted thousands of software developers, graphic designers, social media managers, and virtual assistants who can help you save time, save money, and build better. Get it done right the first time. Visit AfriBlocks.com and tell us Dan sent you to get 10% off your first job. So we're back with Khalid from TrackFlow. So Khalid, great end of the last session there. But let's keep it going. So I'm curious, it sounds like you embrace the role of being a leader as a black founder, not just for your company and your industry, but for kind of the tech landscape in general and being one of those pioneers. Is that a choice or do you feel like it's something that you were sort of like burdened with or others are burdened with? Maybe if you embraced it, is it something that we should all think about as black founders or certain ones of us? How, how do you think about that? Because you brought it up and you talked about it, which not everybody does. Some people just focus on this is what our company's doing. So I'm just curious, do you view it as a burden or maybe a welcome burden, but a burden nonetheless or a choice? I would say yes and Yes, it's a burden and it ultimately became a choice. At this point, I've won awards at MIT, HBS, and Stanford's GSB. HBS is Harvard. Oh uh, yeah, Harvard Business School and Stanford's Graduate School of Business. And during 2020, when Hire Wire was going on, I was in the midst of my own fundraising campaign and these world-class institutions are reaching out to me. Khalid, we need you to be a part of this panel. Khalid, say something, say something, say something. And I'm dealing with growing a business. I'm dealing with my own reality of not getting access to capital in the way that I thought I would. So my own ideas of rejection. And it's still being called upon to speak, to share my sentiment and to share, share this thing. And for the longest while, I did not want to share my struggles with raising capital because I actually believe that I was the exception. I'll be the first to tell you. I thought that, yeah, I hear this stuff about black founders, but they're not me. I went to some of the best schools on the country. I worked at the major construction firms. That's for all those black folks that kind of got ideas and they didn't get through Delta V. I'm that guy. You know what I mean? That 
I'm being, I'm being real. So I struggled with that. I struggled with that reality that I so bad wanted to be on that I wasn't being real with myself about what I was going through. And the truth is, and I love MIT and I love what MIT did for me. My folks in those environments, they were telling me sound advice. They were telling me how it works based off their experience. They were never trying to set me up for what we call the okie doke. They weren't. They were telling me, if you do this and you talk to this person, you're good. They always write checks. And I got to those meetings and I had those conversations. And my truth is I I had term sheets. I've had investors say, hey, we want to invest this much, but we just need you to raise this extra 100000 And when it came to that last 100000 I couldn't get it. I couldn't get the the high network individuals to write me $50,000 checks. And that, that was a harsh moment for me, a harsh reality to deal with. So when I was called to really talk about issues, at first it was... Well, let me talk about it. But at the same time, I was trying to disassociate so I can speak on it because I know it's a problem, but it ain't necessarily. I'm part of a different group. It was after that I really had to reconcile with the reality of my situation that I felt called to speak, that I felt, well, if I'm going to deal with the bull anyway, let me speak truth to power because coming from me is very different. You see, if, if it comes from the dude who thought of an idea of his basement, and yeah, if he was in Silicon Valley and he had the right things, he may have made it. But if he's in the Bronx, like, come on, bro, your app idea ain't getting off the ground. But if I tell you now, nah, I've won awards at the best business schools in the country, and investors, they see the potential, they see it, but there's this, they, they're not certain why they can't make those bets. If I say that, it's different because I'm supposed to be the exception. So it started as a burden, but I've used it to liberate myself because there's something about walking in your truth. There's something about walking in authenticity that people respect. So I no longer have to pretend like I'm not going through it too. And if I say it, if you can look at me, because I'll tell you exactly what happens to me. Some of the white investors say, hey, you're the best and the brightest in the black community. I'm sure the black investors are all over you. And the black investors say, hey, no, I mean, you have all the credentials that most black folks don't have. These other networks are doing it for you. So I'm one of those guys. I'm too high to get over, too low to get under. I'm stuck in the middle, right? So it's become, it started as a burden. At some point, it became a choice. Now it's part of my liberation. Now the growth of TrackFlow will be synonymous with a vocal black leader who will grow his business and will tell you exactly what the challenges of our society is and will always, always hold you to a standard that you're going to have to wrestle with. What is the lost Einstein? I'm not making it up. I'm saying that they're truly lost Einsteins. And I have the vehicle. I'm going to keep going. I'm not going to stop. But how do you wrestle with the reality of, hey, invest, 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 we need to invest in Black founders. And now I've gone out and I've found tools that has changed the rules. Now anybody can be invested in a black farm. Not anybody can invest that at 200, 300, 500 if you believe in the cause. So now I can say, I can demand, put your money where your mouth is. Because if you can't walk the talk, then you're not truly invested. That demand, it challenges people in a real way. I'm not saying I am not a victim. I'm not a victim. I am extremely privileged to have the opportunity to create technology for a living. 
we sit in rooms and say, it's going to be this. And then somebody goes and builds it. And then we be like, hey, you want this new thing? That is beautiful. I'm privileged. I'm a man. I understand I come with a degree of privilege. But I got a lot of training on a lot of different things. I got a physics degree, engineering, a lot of training. The one thing I didn't get any training on was speak. I never took a public speaking class. So if I got this gift, I know a lot of technical minds who can't talk like this, who can't hit that intersection the way that I do. I don't think you needed a class. <laughs> yeah. You just needed somebody to tell you, let's hear it. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, be frank. I'm a spiritual man. So that was my, all right, God, if you're going to give me this burden and this gift, let me use the gift for the burden. And come success, come what happens with track flow, if I can put this out here, this podcast, if I can put a video on YouTube, I'm saying our legacy, our moment in time will be cemented. And if I truly believe in the power of technology and the power of innovation, then I have a responsibility to speak to what it's like in this day and age. Somebody could come back from here 20 years from now and hear these things before we make it big, before we IPO, before we do it. And if that encourages the next generation to be vocal during the process, then I've done a good service. So it's I've taken it on and it's been the most liberating part of this business. I don't have to suffer in silence anymore. I can speak truth to power and keep closing deals and keep growing our business and keep recruiting top talent. And at the same time, hold our nation accountable to what the, the land of opportunity actually is supposed to be. Especially growing up in an immigrant household, you were taught the American dream. You bought into this notion that this is the land of the free and the home of the brave. And that if anybody came here, that they can make an opportunity for themselves. And if you applied yourself, there'll be opportunities that can impact you and your family. Because I was born here, I'm just holding our nation accountable to what it says it stands for. And in that, I'm going to create so many opportunities for so many others. But I got to do my part. I love it. it. I'm super inspired. I'm ready. I'm ready to go, man. Sign me up. Sign me up. So one of the questions we like to kind of wrap up with is the retrospective insights of learning. So like if you could go back to, let's just say pre-track flow, even though you've been entrepreneurial for a while, if you could go back and tell the pre-track flow Khalid, do this, don't do that. Make sure you watch out for this. Make sure you run towards that. What would this Khalid tell that Khalid? I would tell myself, believe in where you are, where you are in the journey. Believe in it. There's so many times, whether it was insecurities or anxieties or not knowing got the best of me. And actually stifled me. I wasn't going as fast as I could because I didn't know. I would tell that Khalid David, believe in where you are on the journey. All these experiences, all these relationships. All these things are absolutely essential for who you're becoming as a leader. And to add on to that, and it's some, some advice that I got from a friend of mine, Pierre from Cleaning, don't try to convince the skeptics. Run with those who are running with you. I've wasted so much time, so much emotional energy trying to convince people who are skeptical. And I've done it in my professional life. I've done it in my personal life. I've done it with my internal conversation about who I am and who I'm becoming. Truly accepting who you are and, and where you're going is also not letting go of this need for validation. 
And sometimes the reason why we try to convince people who are skeptical or on the fence is because we think that if only they were on board, that it will validate what we're doing. I gave some examples. So when we got our first set of VC investors, we had gotten our, our first deal with Turner. And they were like, yeah, that's great. You need to diversify and get as many new general contractors as possible. And I'm like, well, they love us over there. I'm like, I'm their poster child. I'm like, I'm a walking billboard for them. They, they like, hey, you see that guy? If you come to Turner and you're diverse, you can be a leader in industry just like him. Hey, that's, that's my tribe, right? And I spent months trying to validate that other people would get it, right? And again, and we have customers. And then when I finally just sat back and said, well, let me rock with me. Let me rock with them some more. We got more jobs. Those jobs led to actual introductions to their contemporaries because it was like, oh, they rock with you? Oh, we can rock with you. I couldn't do that when I just had one, right? I had to have a couple like, oh, okay, this is real. So I would tell a younger version of myself, like, just really run with those who really run with you because it, it eased the burden of feeling like you got to fit in. And the reality is that as innovators and as black innovators, like we've always been the creators of culture. We've always been the creator of what's new and what's innovative. If it hasn't been done before, no one has the script. No one has the rule book. So if you're doing something that hasn't been done before, it's going to look and feel new. And a lot of people are not going to get it because that's what new things are. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I wasted time with VCs trying to convince people who didn't get it. And there's something about when <laughs> when you get to the point where it's like, listen, I only want to rock with people that rock with me. My VC conversations are completely different. I want to know how what you guys are up to. I'm looking for certain partners that understand my vision, are you guys worthy? Because I'm going to make whoever invests in my company really rich. So do I want to put a return to your fund? Because what are y'all up to? And it's so cra- it's so subtle, completely change the dynamics of a meeting. It's something that you don't know until you experience. You come in wanting to validate them, wanting them to approve you, they can tell. When you come in like this, and I know this is okay, y'all got, yeah, not really. I'm really looking for, can you offer? I'll let you know. We'll get back to you. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, it changes the dynamic. So, and I think that ties into just being real with where you're at and being real with who's really supporting you. And stop, stop, stop trying to convince folks. I try to convince folks to, to join the team. And everybody who joined the team, like, wanted to join the team, wanted to contribute, wanted to, to work crazy hours. Just because someone got, they got talent behind their name or whatever, trying to convince them is going to be a waste of time, energy, and effort. Deep wisdom, man. Deep, deep wisdom. I mean, I could talk to you forever here, but we're coming <laughs> to the end of our time. So we like to leave a call to action to Unfound Nation. What can we do to be supporting you or TrackFlow? Can I put on my call to action voice? You guys not going to judge me. I have a call to action voice that I use just for call to actions. I want to hear it. All right. All right. This is the call to action voice. To those founders unfound, to those who believe that the great work of moving our nation forward, our communities forward, is through actively creating and sustaining economic freedom. That if we were in a position to create wealth and to use technology as a massive wealth creation vehicles, we could radically change our communities in ways that's never been before. I'm asking you to join TrackFlow 
and invest in our Republic campaign so that you can be a part of that history. These are the three things I will guarantee you. I will guarantee you that I will be committed to moving this industry forward. I've been a part of it my whole life, and my life's work has required a lifetime of work. I will guarantee you that I will always be vocal and always advocate for our community. I will give my gifts to bear so that no person walks past this moment in time and not know what we're fighting for. And I promise to stay true and to stay authentic that this journey has taken so much from me, has required me to operate in a level of authenticity because the fake stuff and the gimmicky stuff, it does not hold up when times get tough. And I'm telling you, as a son of an immigrant, as a little black boy who was born in the Bronx, who sat in rooms at world-class institutions as the only person, that that grit that it takes to keep going, to keep fighting, that I will always do that on your behalf. If those are the things you believe in and those are the things you can bet on, invest in track flow. Wow. Yes. Once you retire and have all your money and you're living on an island, I think you have a voice talent career that you can have when you're done. That was good. It just comes out of me. I don't. I can't tell you. It's a gift. I honestly, it just comes out of me. It's authentic too. I can tell, which is great. And is there any URLs or social handles? Any uh, to find out more information? Republic.co/trackflow. T-R-A-C-F-L-O. And also, if you go to our website, Trackflow app. dot com, there's a banner across the top of the page that also can take you to Republic. On Republic, there's a whole thing with my story, my whole pitch. And we're on a path to raise a million dollars, and we can absolutely use your support. I love it. This has been awesome, Khalid. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you so much, Dan. I appreciate the fact that you keep giving us a voice, keep making sure that our time is etched in history. I remember reading about the what's it called, the griots, the griots, the storytellers. You're doing your part in preserving our version of griots. I think they're called in this day and age. So thank you, as the descendant of Africans. Thank you for keeping that part of our tradition alive. Look forward to that mission every single time I'm on the call. So thank you so much. We'd like to thank our guest Khalid David from Trackflow and our sponsor Afroblocks. This podcast was produced by me, Dan Kihanya, with additional audio editing and production from We Edit Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, or simply go to foundersunfound.com/forward/slash/listen-to. That's listen to, and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. At Founders Unfound. Thanks so much for tuning in. I am Dan Kihanya, and you've been listening to Founders Unfound. <laughs>